let's remember the important things that came out of this. There is now a basic and quite involved understanding at the community level of science, science of pandemics and science of, of epidemiology. There's an understanding of immune protection and vaccine protection and herd immunity and epidemiologic concepts. And these are now encoded in our memory. Welcome to the MIT Catalysts, a podcast series by the MIT Club of Northern California. Each episode, host Julia Yu interviews MIT alumni, faculty, and affiliates who are movers and shakers. I'm Irina Huang, producer of the podcast. In today's episode, Julia checks in with Dr. Sud Abdullahi. Dr. Delai is an infectious disease physician, virologist, and epidemiologist. We first had Dr. Delai on our show last May, as COVID-19 cases were climbing in what would become a summer surge. Since then, COVID-19 cases and deaths have followed a roller coaster trajectory. In this episode, Dr. Delai updates us on herd immunity, debunks some common vaccine misinformation with very accessible science explainers, and tells us why he's optimistic about our post-pandemic future. We have with us returning guest, MD and epidemiologist, Dr. Sudeb Delai. Dr. Delai is an infectious disease physician at Stanford Hospital and Palo Alto Medical Foundation. We interviewed Dr. Delai back in the earlier days of this pandemic, and we are checking back in. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Julia, and thanks again for hosting these series. I think that they're um, incredibly valuable, particularly as we go through an evolution of this pandemic, and we're in a very different place now than we were a few months ago when you and I chatted. Absolutely. So first and foremost, how are you doing? Uh, it's uh, Thank you for that question. It's been, um, you know, it's certainly been a trying year for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I try to make sure to remember reasons to be thankful. You know, we're all still healthy. Um, and there are people that have really been completely devastated by this year and this pandemic and loss of jobs and loss of life and loss of family. So um, I try to maintain perspective there. Um, you know, for myself, it uh, has been a nonstop 12 months. And um, it seems like while there were ebbs and flows, Right now is probably the busiest time actually that we've been in the last um, year or so because of the surging in the pandemic and the multiple questions about vaccines and how we distribute these. It's been a busy time uh, for, for those of us who are working on those lines and, and helping um, take care of people. And so I guess, you know, before we get started in some of these questions, which I think are very important to answer for the community, um, you know, let's not forget the people who have been in the hospital slaving away, um, taking care of patients, particularly nurses and people in the ICU and facilities staff. I mean, these are individuals who've been there with us throughout the pandemic. And I think there's a tendency to forget that those people are still there. And even while we've been sheltering at home, they're still there working. And so, you know, it's a, it's a painful reminder of individuals who are there for us. And so I want to make sure that we acknowledge them and remember them. Well, you touched on this a bit, but I wanted to jump into the topic of the vaccine. There's been two that have been approved so far uh, in the United States. Can you speak to the safety of the vaccine as there are still many people out there who are still yet skeptical? I'll start by saying that we can't know for sure if any vaccine is safe. This, this includes the seasonal flu vaccine and vaccines that we get for many other illnesses, including the shingles vaccine. The best we can do is rely on our judgment and experience based on prior vaccines. Now, um, 
from what we know and understand this vaccine is safe and um, is efficacious and there are a lot of caveats there. Um, I think a lot of skepticism or concern about this particular generation of vaccines, particularly the two that were approved, the Pfizer, BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines is that they're both based on technology that's fairly new in the vaccine world. It's not actually novel or entirely new. mRNA vaccines have been used previously a version of the rabies vaccine is an mRNA vaccine, and there were mRNA vaccines that were designed for Zika as well. Those ended up not being deployed um, in uh, mass scales, but there are examples of us using mRNA vaccines in, in humans before. The idea of an mRNA vaccine is that you deliver a message that can direct our cells to produce the protein that then drives our immune system to, dry, uh, to produce an immune reaction instead of injecting that protein directly, we are driving ourselves to produce that protein. And the reason for that is because not only are those vaccines very easy to make um, at very large quantities, but also that this message delivery mechanism is quite efficient and quite specific. And we can actually then um, titrate or modify that message just slightly to get the kind of reaction that we want in an individual so that we don't overshoot or undershoot the amount of immune reaction that, that an individual produces. So in a way, it's a titratable, very controllable analyte um, and, and molecule. The way that this particular mRNA vaccine works is essentially the messenger RNA, which is the encodes the protein we want the body to produce, that's coded in lipid particles, basically fat or oil, uh, it's then injected into the arm. And the idea is that your muscle cells in your arm take up that mRNA, produce that protein. Uh, and, and over a series of days, you, you start to develop an immune reaction to that protein. And that protein is the spike protein that's on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Then that mRNA degrades, it degrades very rapidly. And there, I, I think a lot of the questions or skepticism or maybe even misinformation out there are that the mRNA integrates with our genome, which is not true. That's been shown in many different studies that mRNA does not integrate, um, that it degrades and goes away. Um, so, so from that standpoint, I, I would, um, I would uh, you know, just advise that, that there's been a lot of misinformation about um, modifying our genome based on mRNA. That's, that's not what is happening. And the other is that there may be lasting effects from this that we don't necessarily know about. Um, while I can't say that for sure, um, what ends up happening is the same kind of response that we have to other vaccines. So in the end, our cells produce a protein. That protein then um, causes an immune reaction and that immune reaction is encoded in our immune memory. That is the exact same thing that happens with the flu vaccine and with the shingles vaccine and with the chickenpox vaccine. And so there's no reason to believe that this situation will be any different. For example, there have been individuals who think that, that it'll trigger an autoimmune disease or condition later in life. Um, there is no higher risk of that happening with this vaccine than there would be with any other vaccine that we already get. And so if we believe, and you know, it's been fairly debunked that vaccines cause autism and, and these other side effects, that's been disproven pretty handily. And so we believe all that information that prior vaccines have been safe for us and we've been using them for decades, this vaccine should be no different. So, you know, the skepticism is really about the innovation, the, you know, the new molecule that's being used. Again, it's not entirely new uh, and that it could integrate, which is not true. 
and that it can cause an autoimmune reaction, which is no different than the risk of that from any other vaccine. Um, I had my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine two weeks ago. I actually didn't have any reactions to it at all. I didn't even feel tired, really. I just had a sore arm for about a day. Um, I'll get my second vaccine dose next week. And, you know, again, this is early, but I've, I felt fine. And I think that it's, uh, it's very important to ending this pandemic, the vaccine be deployed. The other, the other misinformation that's been peddled out there is that very high profile people, including Bill Gates and the CEO of Pfizer, are declining to get the vaccine. That, that's actually not true, that they're, that they're declining it based on safety. They want to wait their turn in line. And I think that publicly that makes a lot of sense that um, the vaccine right now has been prioritized for healthcare workers and frontline workers. And Bill Gates and the CEO of Pfizer, um, while very prominent, are not frontline healthcare workers. And so they are taking their turn in line and I applaud them for doing that. But the idea that they're avoiding the vaccine because of safety um, or concerns about these other um, various uh, issues that I talked about, that's not, that doesn't seem to be the case. So I want to touch on the concept of herd immunity. How will we get to the end? Is it via the vaccine, via herd immunity, or a combination? It's, it's a good question. And my answer now is quite different than it was um, many months ago when we talked about it, where we felt that herd immunity was impossible to achieve because the numbers that you need to achieve herd immunity and that concept is that if you have enough individuals in the population that are immune, they no longer transmit and then everyone else is safe. That's the concept of herd immunity. The numbers generally for viruses like this have to be in the high 90s, meaning that 90 plus percent of individuals in a community or in a town or in a school need to have already have been infected and are now immune. And while I didn't believe that was going to be the case six months ago, now seeing the pandemic surge through communities like wildfire, especially in our area, in Southern California, and what happened in New York, where the numbers are quite high as far as proportion of the population was infected, I think herd immunity is actually achievable. But the caveat to that is that it's not thought that immunity to this virus is long lasting. Um, and that shouldn't be surprising to us. I know that the media has really seized on that, but that's true of, of almost all the respiratory viruses. So we get a flu vaccine every year. The reason is because that's a respiratory virus that does not produce an immune response that's durable beyond a year, and neither does the vaccine. And that's just the biology of that particular immune response. Same with the other cold viruses of which coronavirus is related. The other coronaviruses, rhinovirus, enteroviruses, and adenovirus, these are the other cold viruses that circulate every year. And every year we can get reinfected by them. So the idea of herd immunity here is a little complicated because we're not talking about durable immunity where you've had the infection once and you'll never get it again. Uh, the hope and, and what I anticipate is that once you are infected, subsequent illnesses, um, subsequent infections of this same virus will be less severe. And that will be accomplished both by natural infection as well as the vaccine. And we've seen that um, in influenza, the same thing happens where you may have it one year and you may not have had the strain in your flu vaccine that protected you against it and your illness was quite severe. And then you start getting vaccinated year after year with that strain. And eventually when you get the flu with that strain, it's not as bad. And the example I would give is the 2009 swine flu, which was terrible when it first happened. In 2009, it was affecting younger people and pregnant women, and um, there was causing a lot of miscarriages and uh, some pretty awful things. And then year after year, after 2009 swine flu, we have included that strain in our flu vaccine every single year. 
So now you've been vaccinated 10 or 11 times against 2009 swine flu. And if you get it, it will feel no different than any other flu. So that's an example where herd immunity is um, in a way confounded by the challenge of, not, of, of um, non-durable immunity. Um, and so what I anticipate is that this will be an annual vaccine um, and there will probably be either booster shots or you know, another two dose series. There will probably be dose adjustments in different generations of vaccines that come out. But there's no reason to expect that um, this will be a long lasting immunity. But I do think that the combination of herd, where in some populations, I believe we probably already are at 90%, to be honest. I think in some communities, 90% or more of individuals have had COVID-19. Um, plus the idea that vaccines will provide protective immunity, particularly in certain seasons, that will bring the pandemic to an end. And every year we will be dealing with a surge of cases, but it'll no longer be on pandemic proportions and no longer lead to the loss of life um, and the morbidity that's associated with this illness currently and the, the hospitalizations and the rates of severe illness. That will eventually be a thing of the past. It may end up taking us a year to get there because I imagine that with the vaccine uptake, um, what, what it may end up being, plus the idea that immunity is not long lasting and we need to encode it in memory, which takes more than a year. Probably this coming respiratory virus season will be challenging as well. But beyond that, I'm, I'm optimistic about this being a little better controlled. Great. We will take any good news we can get. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. Could you speak to any other revelations or surprises you've had about this virus so far? Yeah, I think that the surge and the magnitude of it um, in, in our community and in our region, and the number of cases in the hospital. I didn't imagine that it would be nearly this high and um, strain our healthcare system so much. We saw it in New York, and so um, I guess we should have probably seen it coming. I think we were all optimistic that things were flattened pretty early on in California, but then wave after wave of events sort of led to an amplification of the epidemic. So we think about gatherings first in around Halloween, and then the elections with rallies, and then Thanksgiving, and now Christmas, and then New Year's. These are all amplifying events. And to be honest, I think California just got very tired of sheltering. And so it's a combination of these things, plus going back to work, led to surges that were very surprising to me. I think the numbers were very staggering to me. The other thing that caught me off guard is what you've probably seen in the news about a new viral variant that is a more fit virus that is more infective. Um, it doesn't cause more severe illness, but I do think that it's responsible for surges beyond what we anticipated. And I'll give you an example. You know, back earlier in the summer, I thought it was fairly safe to go shopping if you wear a mask um, or go to the coffee shop if you're sitting outside, if you're wearing a mask and, and distancing appropriately. Um, I'm now hearing stories of individuals in the hospital who um, that is probably the only thing they did to get the infection is go to Pete's sit outside, have a coffee, and that's the only, only thing that they did. And that suggests to me that there has been a shift in the epidemiology of the virus. And it's probably the new strain, which we expect is probably in up to 50% of new infections. So a more transmissible strain beyond something that was already highly transmissible and leading to infections in places I thought were not possible really caught me off guard. And has really you know, heightened a lot of paranoia amongst a lot of us as to the guidance we were providing people before. Now it's we're back at ground zero, um, advising people, you really need to stay at home. Um, 
and, and, and not be as lax as, as we were during the, the summer, early winter months. I think the other surprise that I've seen and, and that I would um, speak to as a clinician is that we certainly talked about unproven therapies in our prior conversation, that people were stockpiling meds that didn't necessarily have benefit. People were um, using a lot of therapies um, dangerously sometimes. Um, but I'll take the other side of that coin, which is that now we've had some experience with therapies that still don't have a lot of evidence, but seem to provide some benefit, and that a lot of us as clinicians are now providing to our patients. So, um, you know, the, the regimen that a lot of physicians are using in this pandemic for individuals who are not hospitalized, but at COVID-19 or at home and are feeling symptoms are high doses of vitamin D, high doses of vitamin C, sometimes zinc, sometimes uh, azithromycin, and sometimes pepsin. Um, and some combination of these medications are what a lot of individuals are prescribing. And there's not a whole lot of evidence supporting it. At the same time, though, I'll say that, um, you know, almost all of my patients who have COVID-19 were at home, uh, we have avoided them getting hospitalized. I don't know if it was a combination of these things or not, but, um, you know, those, those numbers speak to me. And so whether it's a combination of an understanding of some of the science and why these compounds and um, supplements may have some antiviral properties, um, plus uh, the fact that, um, you know, my patients have done pretty well, and so have others who've been put on these um, regimens pretty early on. That's been a surprise to me, and it's, it's a, sometimes difficult as a clinician to adopt therapies that don't have a lot of evidence, um, but uh, this has really evolved from discussions with colleagues understanding some of these compounds again, and, and also some, some experience with, um, with prior infections and, and where to use these things. So I'm not necessarily recommending that we enact these things as, as a group, but that a discussion with a provider and, and being open to some of these treatments that may not have much of a downside, I think is important. So that was, that was another surprise to me in this pandemic as well. Thank you for sharing those insights. Uh, you wear two hats as an infectious disease doctor and also as an epidemiologist. As an epidemiologist, how has this pandemic changed or not changed your perspective? I think it really brings me back to the basics of epidemiology, where uh, you know the, the first things you learn are about transmission maps and models and index cases and flattening the curve. These are the very first things that you learn. Um, and never in our lifetimes have we had um, to face such uh, a devastating um, situation with a highly transmissible pathogen that um, has a high rate of mortality. Uh, we, we've never had to face that. And so it has really been an exercise in implementing a lot of the basics, which include distancing and mask wearing and sheltering. And, and these were concepts that we've shown in epidemiologic terms have been proven to work. Um, but it's, it's really wearing down, I think, on the, on the I would say, the, the nation's psyche or the nation's resilience to have to do this for a year or more. And so I think that what, I, what I've learned is that these, um, these measures, when implemented and implemented well, have the potential to change pandemics and really change death rates. At the same time though, um, I guess the, the other side of the coin is that they can only do so much um, in the face of social behavior. And in the end, we still need interventive therapies. We still need 
vaccine development. And, and that for me has been, I guess, one of the awakening um, moments for me is that while we did this, um, we weren't successful at containing the pandemic. I think we probably had some initial um, glimmers, but in the end, the vaccine is what's really going to save us because a surge of this magnitude in, in a community where people have to work and people have to live and people have to be out there sometimes, it's just not sustainable um, to, to make a pandemic of this magnitude go away. So that was a learning process for me is that epidemiology is important and crucial um, and it gave us time to develop a vaccine, but it has its limits and it has its role. And sometimes it's time to pass on the torch to medical therapies um, that can really break the chain of transmission. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but we know we aren't quite there yet. What message do you want to leave the audience with today? I think the vaccine is probably the most important message for me. Again, um, there is every indication that this is a safe vaccine, that while the technology is different, this is no less safe than other vaccines and probably is in many ways more safe. And that will be the keys to ending this pandemic um, and getting back to health and getting back to life as we know it. Um, and to not do so and to have you know, 30, 40, 50% of the population not getting vaccinated just really sustains a pandemic. You know, Natural infection may lead to immunity that protects for only a couple of months. And so we're again, back at square one regarding transmissions. And, and sometimes those infections can be more severe. Sometimes they're not less severe. And, and there's a lot we don't know about the immunology. And so, you know, the vaccine is really the break that we need. And it really requires a commitment, a population level commitment. And the other thing that I will say is that because of the arrival of the vaccine, this is a finite period of time. It was long, it was prolonged, and it still is. And it's been very hard. And it's hard to sustain oneself through a situation like this. Um, let's remember the important things that came out of this. There is now a basic and quite involved understanding at the community level of science, science of pandemics and science of, of epidemiology. There's an understanding of immune protection and vaccine protection and herd immunity and epidemiologic concepts. And these are now encoded in our memory. These are things that we'll practice in the future with flu and other communicable diseases. I and mean, these are things that um, were, were previously um, not contained because individuals didn't practice those behaviors. We felt no need to. So now things are a little different. There'll be masking and distancing and ways to roll out school and um, uh, work in, in, in safer ways. So that's a benefit that came out of this. And the other is that um, individuals were able to spend more time with their family, whether it's because they were forced to and had to educate kids at home and, and sort of undergo the challenges with, with having to, to balance childcare with work. But it, it did bring people to stay at home more and be with family more. And I think that that has been a, a blessing for a lot of individuals. And, and oftentimes it's a blessing in disguise. Eventually you go back to work and it will feel foreign to not be with your kids and not be at home every day. And so, you know, this has been, I think, a big benefit of, of, of having a situation like this as well. There aren't, there aren't a lot of benefits, obviously, in a communicable disease, but these are some. And then the final is that we're ready for the next wave of things to come at us. And, and that regards pandemics and, and also um, uh, involves the healthcare system. Um, this has exposed many gaps and challenges in healthcare as we know it. You know, our, our healthcare system is very reactive, but not prepared. Our healthcare system can deal with very small things, but not scalable things. 
And our healthcare system is not very distributed. It's very centralized in large cities. And the furthest reaches and corners of the population don't have access to good healthcare. And also, this is exposed in, in a very um, poignant way the inequities in healthcare and the people who have access to the best therapies and the best hospitals and the best doctors and the people who have none of that and who suffer the consequences because of it. And my hope is that this exposure has been so large, whether it's the media talking about it or the, whether it's um, you know, high profile individuals talking about it or whether it's been papers that have been published about this very topic that individuals um, who have healthcare inequities do worse in SARS-CoV-2 infection. It has exposed this, and it has exposed that healthcare needs to evolve, and the way that we deliver healthcare needs to evolve. And and uh, you know, telemedicine is an example of the way that we now reach these populations that were remote and didn't have access before. And those things are here to stay. So I would say that we now learn from the mistakes of of designing or misdesign of our healthcare system that this has now been a wake-up call and, and ways that we can evolve this healthcare system to serve the needs of many, not just the needs of a few. Thank you so much for tuning in to the MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Huang. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sud Abdullahi, for taking the time to chat with us again. Thanks also to the MIT Cloud of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like this show, please share widely with friends and family, and even leave us a review. You can also send us feedback and guest recommendations at podcasts at mitcnc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at M-I-T-C-N-C dot Org. Until next time, we're the MIT Catalysts. Thanks for listening.